listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Now, as we've been going through the Sermon of the Mount, you might have noticed Jesus' threefold pattern that he's employed to teach us what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets, but also to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? He tells us, first, the good old command from Moses. Like the one, do not murder. But then he tells us the true heart intentions of that command. But I say to you, do not get angry with your brother. And then third, he gives us a practical application. Reconcile. Forgive. And as we look at today's passage on biblical justice, he's going to do more of the same of what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets. He doesn't just want your outward obedience. He wants heart transformation. He doesn't want behavior modification. He wants the heart to be transformed. And in a world that is confused, utterly confused of what justice is, what justice isn't, the church is called to be salt and it's called to be light in a dark world. We are to be a counter culture to a culture of darkness. We are called to be peacemakers, church. We are called to be merciful. So how do you respond to someone who has wronged you? What is your heart's cry and your heart's posture towards someone who wants to inflict pain on your life, whether that's physical pain or emotional pain by the words that they use with you? How are we to respond to others who intend harm without adopting the modern identity and mentality that is victimhood? How are we to do this, church? Well, it comes from this simple yet weighty principle in this passage. That what man intends for evil, God uses for our good. What man intends for evil, God will use for our good. Therefore, Christian, we respond to evil with good, even if it means our death. We respond to evil with good. And we're going to see that, we're going to observe that through two points, two pillars that we're going to be looking at from this passage. The first pillar is this, the pattern and the problem. The pattern and the problem. And the second is the power and the pardon. So first point, 
The pattern and the problem. Second point, the power and the pardon. Are you all ready to dive in? Keep those Bibles open so you can make sure that what I'm saying is what this word is saying. First point, the pattern and the problem. Look with me in verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the simplest way to explain what is being said here in a single word is this. Justice. Justice, by definition, is getting what you deserve. Justice is a penalty that fits the crime. But before we look at how to administer justice, we first have to understand the heart of justice, the character of justice, that justice flows not from the world, but it flows from the heart and the character of God, and it flows into not just individual lives, but community lives. That God's heart and his character is fair, it's just, it's impartial, it's generous. It does not play favorites, it's merciful, and it's gracious. God's character, it advocates for the oppressed while simultaneously not letting the oppressed become oppressors themselves. Do you hear that? He advocates for the oppressed without letting the oppressed become oppressors themselves. We see this in Moses' writing from Exodus 23.9. Look with me there. He says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, if you remember our Exodus series, Made Known to Be Made Known, this passage comes from three chapters of God's civil justice that he has set up in Israel's theocracy. It's a government that is ruled by God in God's civil law courts alone. And this is where Jesus is pulling the command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, can the church say retributive justice? Can you say restorative justice? Both retributive and restorative justice are wrapped up in this command, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you were to dive deep into Exodus 21 to 23, you'll find at every turn, people are getting what they deserve for what they have done. That if you took something, you are to restore what you have taken to the one you have taken from. It could be a meal. It could be land. It could even be a foot. But you are to pay it back. No more, no less. This is retributive justice. The offender is making a payment equal to the crime that he or she has committed. They are getting what they deserve. And the payment back to the offendee is restorative justice because they are getting restored what was taken from them or getting repaired what was broken in their lives. Y'all with me? What would happen if someone lost an eye as an employee of an employer? Exodus 21 to 23 tells us it would not benefit for the employer to gouge out his eye and say, here's my eye. 
That would do the victim no good. And so God, in his wisdom, set up payment that was worthy of the cost of losing one's eye. That would pay for the damages that would result of only having one eye. It would repair reparations, if you will, of the damages. Now, this is the wisdom of God. Because there is a problem. The wisdom of God presents a pattern, but we have a problem. We want payment. The wise heart of God wants exact payment, fair payment. But we want people to pay more than what they deserve, don't we, at times? See, this maximum sentence that God has set up, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, lex talionis, if you enjoy Latin, this has two positive implications. It checked wild revenge at the door. And it also taught impartial and fair justice. Now, a couple summers ago, I was driving down in the Strip District, and um, a guy... He came up, sideswiped me, and scraped my front right passenger door and my front right wheel well. Now, Ed, he was a sweet old Jewish man. He wanted to make things right, and he said, I I will pay for everything out of pocket. But I remember that on that same side, back on my back right wheel well, somebody who may or may not be in this room also scratched the back of my car, and in my wickedness, in my sinfulness, I tried to figure out how in the world can I get this guy to pay for something that he did not do. And in that brief moment, the Spirit convicted me. This was an eye for eye. This was exacting more than what was required of him. See, what these civil commands did, it protected, yes, criminals from overpaying for their crimes. Because the heart of sinful men want to always get more than they deserve. All Ed, according to the civil law of Moses and to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, had to do was pay for the crime he committed. And that's it. These civil laws in Moses' time were put into place because it reflected the character of God. But it also was honest about the character of men. We are flawed. We are wicked. We are evil. That when wrongs are done to us, we don't just want it righted. We want to oppress We want to take justice into our own hands. We want to redefine justice so that we end up on top and those who harm us end up on the bottom. We don't just see this in corrupt court systems. We don't just see this in any type of corrupt government. We see this, church, if we're honest, in our own lives, don't we? Because here is is the problem that Jesus knew that the Pharisees brought into that context. They took what was meant for the civil law courts. Can you say civil law courts? 
It was meant to stay there. That principle was meant to stay there. And what they did was brought it into the personal relationships where it was never meant to be found. The Pharisees and scribes had this pattern of taking a civil code and using it for personal vengeance when they were wronged. Personal vengeance says, I don't need a witness, I don't need a jury, and I don't need a judge because I am my own jury, I am my own witness, I am my own judge. I am omnipresent and omnicompetent, I am everywhere at all times, and I know all. Therefore, I don't need anybody tell me how you need to pay me back. This is rooted in self-righteousness. And, if we're honest, it's rooted in injustice. It's partial to me to make my life easier, my life happier, regardless if it's fair to the one who wronged me. It's partial to me, my tribe, to improve my standing at the expense of others. Unbiblical justice that the Pharisees and the scribes committed to was only good for their base, for the good old boy club. To make sure they had everything they needed at the expense of others. What God meant for good, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, men turned into evil. That is the pattern. It's also the problem. But we'll see in the second point the power in the pardon. In what man tended for evil, God will use for good. Continue with me in verse 39. But I, that's Jesus here, says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, Jesus, he's not proposing an antithesis to this command. The command from Moses is intrinsically good. What he's proposing is a proper exegesis that deepens and widens the scope of this command. He's saying, hey, if somebody sins against you, that's what an evil person is. He'll later call us evil when he says, and you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more does the Father know how to give good things to those who ask him? Who is the evil one? You want to know how you find out? Take two fingers like this. Here's the litmus test. Come on. Do it with me here. Put it right here. If you feel a pulse, that lets you know if you're the evil one or not. We sin against others. We hurt others. We harm others with our words. But how? How are we to respond to others when that is done to us. How we are we to treat others? Jesus uses the illustrations from the cloak all the way to the loan to describe to us our response as disciples of Jesus is neither fight nor flight. It's neither retaliation nor running away from the problem. I love how Frederick Bruner says this. He says, stay Right there. I love how he sums this up. Stay right there and do something surprising. Do something that will surprise the evil one in front of you. 
Jesus does not say, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, fall to the ground. Play dead. He doesn't say, run away. No, he says to confront the evil with a surprisingly non-evil response. Turn the other cheek, verse 39. Give the other garment, verse 40. Go the extra mile, verse 41. Give out another loan, verse 42. You see, to offer the other cheek, commentators will argue back and forth about this a little bit, but I think it's both and here. The the object of, of turning the other cheek is not just making yourself vulnerable to another strike, but to turn the other cheek is to offer the kiss of peace. To say, I'm offering you peace right now. Blessed are the peacemakers. To give the other garment. That tunic was your outward garment. If someone would sue you for that, he's saying, give them the cloak. You know what the cloak was? The cloak was underwear back in the day. It was, was laid up against the skin. It's saying, be willing to go completely naked because the person who is suing you obviously needs that more than you do. And I will clothe you. I'll give you everything you need. He's saying to go the extra mile in verse 41 because back in the day, if you had a status that was higher than others, especially as a Roman soldier, you can force the marginalized to carry your swords and your equipment. And he's saying, they ask one, serve them. Go another mile with them. And if someone keeps taking advantage of you, verse 42, another loan, another loan, another loan, give it all up because your treasures are not here on earth. They're in heaven. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus who is wronged. When a Christian commits not to resist evil, they're committing to not retaliate with more evil. They're saying, I will not respond to evil in kind. I will respond to it with kindness, goodness, graciousness. He's saying, do not get even with evil. Get even with mercy. Get even with serving them. Get even with loving them. Give them what they don't deserve. The Justice Department is in charge of determining who gets what they deserve. But in your personal relationships, you give them what they don't deserve. Grace, mercy, and love. And you, we might just think this is like a New Testament mentality. But Jesus is pulling on the heart commands of the Old Testament. Look in Leviticus 19, another command from our boy Moses. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, can you say this with me? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Micah, in the great requirement, says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk Humbly with your God. Jesus, church, is not calling for inaction. He is calling for action from us. And the only way to overcome evil is to let evil run its course and not to resist it 
with more evil. You want to know why? Because evil will give birth to more evil. Retaliation gives birth to more sin, to more wars. But when evil, when sin, when hurtful words meets patient endurance, when it meets a merciful response, evil then finally has met an opponent that it's more than its match. This church is the power of powerlessness. This is the power of serving others. That when you, Christian, I mean, how, have you, how many of you have been treated badly this past week? All of us, right? We probably have stories upon stories about how supervisors mistreat us at work. How co-workers have said something awful about us behind our backs, and we find out about it lately. There are 101 experiences of everyone every week, and Jesus is calling us to be surprisingly creative people in how we respond. That the disobeyed parents will not respond violently and shamefully to their kids who disobey them. They will meet their kids with the grace and mercy the Father in heaven has shown to them. That when your roommate keeps taking and taking advantage of you paying the rent and never paying you back, we do not respond with vengeance. We respond with kindness. And notice Jesus doesn't say no one. He doesn't say no one is allowed to resist evil. He says you, Christian. Meaning that the battered wife in an abusive relationship Her surprising response is to leave that home to seek a praying and forgiving community that will pray for her oppressive and evil husband while also calling the civil authorities that God has set up to put that evil man in jail. We do not enact vengeance. We let the civil courts do their civil job to enact justice while we keep offering mercy. We respond to evil with good. And Jesus is getting to the heart of this command. He's saying, if evil is done to you, do not take matters into your own hands. By returning evil with evil, we are to return good to man's evil intent. The Apostle Paul, a disciple of Jesus, who says often, follow me as I follow Jesus, he says this in Romans 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Let me read that again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Church, do you know that the early Christian community was known for this type of love? That when evil words were spoken of them, they did not retaliate. That when wrongs were done to them, they didn't wrong others. The early church community was marked by a spirit of mercy and forgiveness. The early church said, if you attack me, you'll either be judged by the courts or you'll one day be judged by God. Vengeance is not mine. Vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. And so even if you attacked them or killed them, they did not retaliate. You would even find Christians being tortured and executed. You know what they were doing while they were being executed? Praying for their persecutors. Church, how often do you find yourself praying for those who hurt you? How often are we marked by a mentality of mercy and forgiveness? Because you know what happened in the early church? When they offered reconciliation to their enemies, they built a bridge. They offered forgiveness, and it showed off the character of God that made an extremely pagan world, more pagan than our own United States, turn to Christ, and the church grew immensely because of their commitment to non-retaliation. So church, when someone is evil, how do you respond to them? When they hurt you with their words that cut deep, do you cut them back? Or do you offer words that will heal the relationship? Words of, I forgive you. Words of reconciliation. Because at the heart of God's justice is the heart of his mercy. It's not our job to give people what they deserve. Our job is to show them mercy, to give them what they do not deserve. Grace, forgiveness. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that back in 2006, how many years ago was that? It's like 15 years ago, 2006. A horrific event happened in Pennsylvania where a gunman walked into an Amish schoolroom and he shot 10 children. Five of them were killed and then he committed suicide. And within the hour of this happening, the entirety of the Amish community showed up at the immediate relatives of this man and the family of this man to offer their sympathy for the loss of their son. And one by one, they had a unity that was marked by the character of God where they forgave this man for what he did. Now, our world doesn't know how to respond to or handle being wronged or suffering in the way that the Amish did. The Amish's ability to forgive was based on two things. They forgave because their heart of their faith was in a man in Christ Jesus who died for his enemies. 
who died for the forgiveness of his enemies. For Jesus to live and to forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous, enormous power because he has pardoned even his enemies. And this is what the Amish has done, and it's not just in Jesus, it's all throughout the Old Testament. That even what Adam and Eve meant for evil, God would use for good, right? Who was going to come from the woman? The Messiah who would crush the head of the ultimate evil one, Satan. What they meant for evil, God was going to use for good. We see this even in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, where his 11 evil brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt. And in Egypt, he rised up into power, where there was a famine all around in the land, and his 11 brothers had to come to Egypt in order to be fed. And they find their brother Joseph at the height of power. And terrified in what their brother might do to them. They pleaded for his forgiveness and his mercy. To not enslave them like they enslaved him. You know what Joseph's words were? Oh brothers. What you intended for evil. God intended for good. So that the vast spans of the human race around here could be saved from the famine. You know what Joseph did? He took their wrongs on himself. And this is where this Amish community had enough power to pardon others because they knew that all their sin was put on Jesus in order to be forgiven. And they're able to say, we'll bear the cost. We'll not take five children's lives from your community. We will seek to forgive. We will show mercy to you. And this, friends, is the power from the pardon of the cross. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a sufferer for the gospel, writes about this and the cost of discipleship. He says, the cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. But it was this great participation in the cross which the disciples were granted when Jesus called them to him. They are called blessed because of their visible participation in his cross. They're blessed because they know it was their sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You see, people who won't forgive, people who are unwilling to forgive, show that they have really haven't accepted the true nature of their own sinfulness. People who refuse to be peacemakers do not realize the war that they have waged against their creator in their own sin. And people who refuse to be merciful have not realized that the wrath of God is the just payment for how we have lived. We deserve the punishment from God, but instead, even though our sins are many, church, his mercy is more. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we might have real enemies who are against us, but our posture is for them. Why? Because even when you were against God and Christ, he was always for you. The church is never against anyone. 
even our enemies. We are for them. This is why we don't retaliate blow for blow, insult for insult. This is why we don't adopt the modern identity of victimhood, because victim is not our identity. Child of the living God is our identity. Sons and daughters of God is our identity, and no one, not anyone can take that identity from you. Because Jesus Christ, did you know he was not a victim? Because before the foundations of the earth were laid, God the Father planned before the fullness of time to send Jesus Christ, and he came not as a victim, but willingly went to the cross. He went to bat for you, to suffer for you, to die for you, willingly. He wasn't forced to go one mile. He willingly went to the cross in your place to get what you deserve so that you can obtain what he deserved. Perfect righteousness, grace, and mercy. You see, you will never, church, you will never be able to respond this way to others until you first see that Christ has responded this way to you. I've said it again and again that before the Sermon on the Mount is ever about us, it is first about Jesus. Before it's about us, it's first about Jesus. That God, being fully good and just, he had every right to pour out his justice on us to give us what we deserve. We have failed to live this way. I mean, don't we want people to overpay for their wrongs? Even sitting here right now, you could probably think of someone who you want them to hurt worse than the way that they have hurt you. You want them to restore to you what they have taken tenfold. And that, by definition, is an injustice. And it's worthy of God's punishment. But God, being rich in mercy... He sent Jesus for you. He sent Jesus to do what you could not do. That Jesus, when he was slapped on the right cheek by the Roman soldiers, he turned to them his other, and then his other, and then his other. When he was insulted, reviled. He did not trade revilement for revilement or insult for insult. When he was brought before the courts, the Sanhedrin and Pilate, he willingly let them disrobe him to be humiliated before all so that he would be beaten as he stood there naked and condemned for something he did not do. And when he was told to walk to Golgotha, he just didn't take himself but he bore the awful load of our sin, our shame, and our guilt as he carried that Roman torture device up the hill to Calvary. And on that cross, as they tortured him, tormented him, saying, save yourself. You could save others, but why can't you save yourself? Because he knew if he saved himself, he could not give us what we would eventually beg for, his life his righteousness, and he gives it to us freely. You see, what held Jesus to the cross was not the nails. What held Jesus to the cross was his immense love for you, his mercy that he wanted to pour out to you so that you do not get what you deserve, but Jesus gets what you deserve. That is God's justice wrapped up in God's 
mercy. That what you intended for evil took Jesus to the cross. But God used that evil for your good when he chose to forgive us. Not based on what you do. Not how well you obey this command. Not how well you obey this command in the future. Because we will fall and we will fail at this many times over. Amen? But Jesus, when he says it's finished, it's finished. I've purchased your redemption. I have washed you in my blood. That if the only part of our salvation that we played a part in was the evil that necessitated it, and all we receive is mercy and grace, how can we not extend that mercy and grace to others? See, when you trust and trust in Jesus alone, you'll begin to rejoice in the forgiveness that's offered to you to then extend forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. Because do we deserve it, church? No. When you meditate on what Jesus has done for you, you recognize the mercy that we don't deserve. Do we deserve it? No. And neither do the people we extend it to. See, what Jesus does, he brings you into the divine courtroom. He takes off your robes of rags, your robes of shame, and he clothes you in his robes of righteousness. So when God looks at you, he is well pleased, brother and sister. He sees you as he sees Jesus, perfect, righteous, good, if you know this type of forgiveness, then there's only so much that other people's hurtful words and hurtful actions can do to you because they can never take away your deepest identity. Son of God. Child of God. And if they can't take that away from us, then they can't take God's forgiveness away, his mercy away, and his grace. So you know what we have to offer them? God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. This is a high calling. And this was a pattern that we had to live up to. This would crush us. Would it not? But we have the power in Christ's blood to pardon us. And now we have the power of the Spirit to live out this calling imperfectly. But with full faith that God can intend good for others even when they tend evil for us. Amen.